Welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I am Giulia Bruna from the UCD Humanities Institute. The following lecture in the series Modalities of Revival as part of the Irish Revival Network projects is given by Dr. Liam Lanigan, Assistant Lecturer at NUI Maynooth. Revival and the City in James Stevens's Dublin Fiction. The Irish literary revival's pastoral vision of a people untainted by urban modernity, though largely inspired by German Romanticism and the proliferation of scholarly investigations of the folklore of various European national literatures, has frequently been linked with the experience of the famine and the revolution in land ownership brought about by the land acts of the late 19th century. The latter, in particular, threatened the position of the Protestant ascendancy within Irish society, who faced the possibility of total marginalisation in the face of a growing and increasingly vocal Catholic middle class. Viewed as a garrison population, Protestant writers began to hark back to a largely imaginary pre-lapsarian Irish idyll defined by rurality and pre-modern social harmony. As Raymond Williams has noted, such pastoral writing depends for its effect on the suppression of work in the countryside and of the property relations through which this work is organised. One of the more profound effects of this suppression is that the city becomes synonymous with a state of lost innocence, detrimental to personal health as well as to social cohesion. In an Irish context, the city also becomes the locus of English attitudes and ways of life, as well as a symbol of imperial domination. Indeed, as idealised visions of a rural nation proliferated, it became increasingly difficult to conceive of an Irish nation coming into being in the city at all. These attitudes were by no means the preserve of ascendancy writers. The Catholic Church was deeply suspicious of urban life as tending to foster secularism and socialism, and so the pastoral conception of the countryside became bound up with social conservative efforts to protect an emerging Irish state from the myriad threats posed by a secular modernity. In this cultural climate, representations of the city would appear to be subject to severe limitations. Dublin, in particular, lay outside the cultural definition of an emergent Irish state. The revival, predicated on the idea that through literature the nation could be brought imaginatively into being, might represent Dublin, but never as the object of imaginative appropriation. What Mervyn Horgan calls the conflation of rurality and anti-urbanism with nationalism was thus a key anti-colonial strategy in the process of nation-building in early 20th century Ireland. While this was undoubtedly true, it is problematic to further conflate such anti-urban sentiment with the overall trajectory of the revival, both as a broad-based cultural upheaval and as a literary movement. Treatments of the literary revival that take Yeats and Singh as synecdochic of the revival as a whole cannot account for the multiplicity of countervailing forces at work within the revival as a broad, multifaceted cultural movement. Even within the pastoral idyllic tradition of the revival, competing visions of the peasant and of the meaning of the Irish landscape proliferated and came into tension with one another. More importantly, analyses of the literary revival that have emphasised its anti-urban tendency have overshadowed the presence of real and active countervailing forces in revivalist writing that sought to accommodate the city within its rhetoric while also tending to narrowly focus on the revival as a primarily literary movement to the exclusion of much broader social and cultural elements whose rhetorical thrust is not intrinsically anti-modern or socially conservative. 
Thus, while it is understandable that a movement whose primary motivation was to establish clearly the contours of an Irish identity might appear exclusionary and essentialist in the criteria by which that identity comes to be defined, it should come as no surprise that within the same movement there are a host of contradictory and often conflicting views about how that identity should be formed. And if certain elements of the revival were often caustically dismissive of the city in their rhetorical formulation of the meaning of Irishness, it should be equally unsurprising to find that there existed also contrasting forces that sought to reconcile the reality of modern urban life with an emerging Irish identity at a moment when an Irish state and all of its attendant practical concerns was increasingly becoming a possibility. In particular, this talk will address how the town planning movement and the Dublin fiction of James Stevens addressed these issues. In 1911, the Housing and Town Planning Association of Ireland published Housing and Town Improvement, a short booklet designed to introduce readers to the principles of town planning, largely derived from Ebenezer Howard's Garden Cities of Tomorrow, and to advocate for their implementation in Ireland. The foreword, written by Lady Aberdeen, plays on the patriotism of its readers to make the case for the planning movement. She calls upon Irish men and Irish women everywhere to join the Housing and Town Planning Association of Ireland in order to prepare for the future of a people determined to make the most of themselves and of their country. Aberdeen alludes obliquely to the importance of history, but remains firmly focused on the role planning will have in the future of the nation, although she carefully avoids deploying any language that might alienate non-nationalist readers. Among the press references quoted at the beginning of the booklet are words of praise from the Freeman's Journal and the Northern Whig, the latter comments in passing of the Town Planning Act 1909, it is not the least, though it is one of the latest Irish grievances that Ireland is excluded from the benefits of that act. While the Toome Herald remarks, there is no one with a spark of patriotism but must wish to see our ill-planned, ill-kept towns arranged on a better plan, divested of their repulsive suburbs and unhealthy quarters, and made generally more civilised and comfortable. The Irish Industrial Journal makes a similar appeal to national pride in the defence of planning. Here in Ireland, where nature strews her charms with lavish hand, there is no excuse for the monstrosity of modern town planning. In a chapter entitled Town Planning in Ireland, the link with the revival is made more explicit. To be in line with the revival of language, industries, commerce and arts in modern Ireland, there is need to urge constantly the necessity of a comprehensive, orderly and healthy system of development in its cities, towns and villages. There is an increasing spirit of national pride among all classes and great hope of future prosperity. Is it not well then that this spirit should be aided in expressing itself in the dignity and comfort of our homes and in the grace, convenience and architectural beauty of our cities, towns and villages? This passage draws heavily on the vocabulary of the revival, but its rhetoric is unambiguously progressivist. Art we must have in poverty or riches, else we must surely fail as a nation. There exists now in Ireland just that incipient state of affairs into which all the multitudinous benefits of town planning can be introduced judiciously. The Housing and Town Planning Association of Ireland's model for the future of town and city planning was the Garden Village in Kilkenny, now known as Talbot's Inch, whose appearance they describe with that most quintessentially revivalist term, racy of the soil. The town planning movement was widely regarded as out of touch with the realities of the housing problem in Ireland, its appeal limited to a small coterie of well-heeled amateurs with little practical experience of the extent of the Dublin housing problem. The fact was, though, that during the 1800s and the start of the 20th century, few of those in positions of greater power had done much to address the issue substantially. 
Nationalism and Catholicism, as the main forces for social change in Ireland, had the majority of their support base in the countryside, and the urban population was too small for the urban housing problem to become a major political issue. What is remarkable, nevertheless, is how easily the housing question shades off into debates around nationhood. Ruth McManus writes, in Dublin, middle-class suburbanisation led to increasing religious and political segregation as the largely Protestant and Unionist middle classes moved away, leaving the Catholic and nationalist-dominated Dublin Corporation to cater to the urban poor. This enabled Unionists to criticise the Corporation's failure to cope with housing conditions and use it as evidence that Irish nationalists were incapable of self-government. In turn, nationalists argued that a lack of political will at government level was hindering their attempts to solve the housing problem, but that in an independent Ireland this would no longer be the case. Increasingly, this debate became bound up with the question of urban social inequality as well. In 1905, the first working-class suburb in Dublin was built in Clontarf, and while the Irish builder and engineer welcomed the development as the best method of combating our high death rate and arresting the ravages of consumption and other diseases, worker resistance to rehousing meant that a 1908 proposal to expand the suburb was cancelled. But during the 1913 lockout, the housing question became a key issue in the debate over the conditions of the working class in Dublin, and after the collapse of a Church Street tenement in September killed seven people, James Larkin became an advocate of working class suburbanisation. The September 4th, 1913 edition of the Irish Times declared that if every unskilled labourer in Dublin were the tenant of a decent cottage of three or even two rooms, the city would not be divided into two hostile camps. The Roman Catholic clergy, too, were attracted to the development of single-family suburban housing. But while Monsignor Michael Cronin believed they would alleviate sickness and misery, whether physical or moral, in contrast to Larkin, he saw the suburbs as a means to protect the state from the advance of communist sedition. If a communist organiser wished to lay plans for the development of communist cells throughout Dublin for the building of red forts for revolutionary purposes, could he do better than dot the city over with large barracks of propertyless men? A 1914 Local Government Board for Ireland report into the housing crisis, which had taken evidence from leading figures in planning such as Patrick Geddes and the Dublin City Architect, came out heavily in favour of large-scale suburbanisation. And while Dublin Corporation remained resistant to this solution, the broad support for such ideas from across the nationalist ideological spectrum indicates a willingness to engage with both urban life and the texture of the city's topography imaginatively. Efforts to reimagine how Dublin might be planned were inseparable from debates about what role the city might play, both in a future independent Ireland and more broadly within the national imaginary. And while the rhetoric of many groups, in particular the Housing and Town Planning Association of Ireland and the Catholic Church, was often reliant on an idealisation of the benefits of country living to one's moral, physical and spiritual health. Nevertheless, they opened up the possibility of thinking about ways to appropriate the city as a site of meaning in an emerging Ireland. It is in this context that we can re-examine the way that such engagements with the city were registered in the literature of the revival. Without rejecting the notion that certain elements of revivalist discourse were fundamentally anti-urban, we can nevertheless begin to comprehend the much more complex role of the city, and in particular Dublin, in the formation of a revivalist aesthetic. Certainly Dublin remained a cause of anxiety among the revivalists. In W. P. Ryan's contemporary account of the literary revival, he describes the movement as, of course, racy of the soil, inspired and moulded by the Land League and founded out of a devotion to a peasantry at one with Irish fields and firesides. Ryan nevertheless betrays a concern for the cultural development of Dublin and its role in Ireland's future. 
We may see in our day in Dublin genuine Irish plays of truth and talent written for the people, prized by the people, moving and moulding the people. Otherwise, I fear that the city will not half deserve to be the capital of a nation. Cultural nationalists, for all of the anti-urban rhetoric, recognise the role of the capital city in shaping the national consciousness. Dublin, as a result, would remain a highly contested space, even between the different strands of nationalist sentiment. Jane Stevens' The Charwoman's Daughter, published in 1912, illustrates how revivalist texts could in fact engage imaginatively with the city and seek to formulate ways of responding aesthetically to both the nature of urban life and the particular political circumstances of an Irish city under British ideological control and surveillance and try to appropriate Dublin as a site of meaning. The novel deploys some of the conventions of fairy tale, just as it adopts some of the conventions of Dickensian urban realism. However, its depiction of Dublin is a complex admixture, characterised as much by consumerist phantasmagoria and seemingly comprehensive systems of official surveillance as by images of extreme poverty and combining ruralist fantasies of escape with positive impressions of the nature of urban life that problematise received understandings of the relationship between revivalism and the city. The book's opening imagery of a big, dingy house in a Dublin backstreet where the grime of many years blocks the view from the window of the tenement in which Mary Makebelieve lives with her mother is a typically Dickensian vision of urban squalor. Such details are dotted throughout the novel, such as the image of Mary carrying upstairs a large water bucket, the portage of which two or three times a day is so heavy a strain on the dweller in tenements. Frequently, this imagery is combined with gentle reminders of the sense of communalism in adversity fostered by tenement life, such as when the new tenant staying with their neighbour, Mrs. Cafferty, offers to help Mary to lift the aforementioned water bucket. Stevens repeatedly associates the poverty of the tenement dwellers with their sense of powerlessness, and more specifically with their incomprehension of the systems of power at work upon their lives. Mrs. Cafferty, unable to understand why her husband cannot find a job, declares that there was something wrong somewhere, but whether the blame was to be allocated to the weather, the employer, the government, or the deity, she did not know. Mary's response to her surroundings is to indulge in escapist fantasy, which frequently contains overtones of nostalgic anti-urban idealism. She daydreams that they were to move the first thing in the morning to a big house with a garden behind it full of fruit trees and flowers and birds. There would be a wide lawn in front of the house to play lawn tennis, there were to be 12 servants. Mary's fantasy is rooted in an idealised vision of the past and the sense of pessimism about the future is reinforced by her mother's impression of inevitable widespread social decline. Nowadays, her mother looked on these paltry times with an eye whose scorn was complicated by fury. Mean, ugly days, mean, ugly lives and mean, ugly people. Even at the outset, the only hope advanced for any kind of improvement in the social fortunes of mother and daughter is the vague possibility that Mary's uncle Patrick might return from America with money, or that someone going along the street may take a fancy to you and marry you. There is no dynamic force within the immediate social structure through which a similar change might be effected. The novel therefore seems to look to an idealised anti-urban past, or to some point outside the social structures determining the protagonist's daily lives for an alternative way of being than that provided by the tenement system. However, the novel does provide a set of coordinates through which we might understand the structural underpinnings of the make-believe's poverty, even if the connections between them remain obscure. Mary frequently alleviates her hunger pangs by indulging in the phantasmagoric escapism provided by the Grafton Street shop windows. 
She was able to tell her mother at night time that the black dress with Spanish lace was taken out of Manning's window and a red gown with tucks at the shoulders and Irish lace at the wrists put in its place, or that the diamond ring in Johnson's marked £100 was gone from the case and that a slide of brooches of beaten silver and blue enamel was there instead. In the night time, her mother and herself went round to each of the theatres in turn and watched the people going in and looked at the big posters. When they went home afterwards, they had supper and used to try to make out the plots of the various plays from the pictures they had seen. Though Mary's walks between meals and her long discussions over supper with her mother mark her exclusion from the fantastical world of conspicuous consumption that the windows and theatres represent, she is still able to engage with the commercial city as a spectacle, participating imaginatively in the process of self-creation that these objects enable by continually walking the city, a freedom upon which the novel repeatedly remarks. The charwoman's daughter thus defines the city both in terms of a carefully constructed set of social divisions whose territories are represented by the windows that separate Mary from the objects of her continually frustrated desire and a concomitant offering of the possibility of personal development and change through the acquisition of consumer goods. It therefore encapsulates one of the central contradictions of modern urban life in its representation of Dublin. But Stevens also seeks out strategies for representing the culture of surveillance and social enforcement through which these contradictory experiences of the city are maintained. Throughout the text, Mary Makebelieve's movements through the city are increasingly observed and regulated through her encounters with a policeman whose romantic advances shade off quickly into an oppressive compulsion to control the girl. The policeman's acts of observation operate as an extension of the power of the state apparatus as an integrative force serving to unify and control its otherwise multitudinous operations. The narrative repeatedly references the intensity and inescapability of his gaze in contrast with her own sheepish glances. She notices in an early encounter his calm, proud eye, a governing, compelling and determined eye. She did not think he noticed her, but there was nothing he did not notice. Later, her shy, creeping glance was caught by his. It held her mesmerised for a few seconds. It looked down into her. For a moment, the whole world seemed to have become one immense eye. She could scarcely get away from it. The policeman's gaze, in fact, seems to bring all of the city's elements into its orbit, bestowing order and control upon all of its aspects. When Mary first sees him, Stephen's description begins with the policeman's position at the intersection of Nassau Street and Grafton Street, but expands outward into a broad panorama of the city as a whole, its political and cultural contradictions and social complexities on display, but all carefully overseen by the policeman's all-encompassing gaze. Perhaps this is the most interesting place in Dublin. Upon one vista, Grafton Street with its glittering shops stretches, or rather winds, to the St. Stephen's Green Park, terminating at the gate known as the Fusilier's Arch, but which local patriotism has rechristened the Traitor's Gate. On the left, Nassau Street, broad and clean, and a trifle vulgar and bourgeois in its openness, runs away to Merrion Square and on with a broad ease to Black Rock and Kingstown and the Sea. On the right-hand Suffolk Street, reserved and shy, twists up to St Andrew's Church, touches gingerly the South City markets, droops to George's Street and is lost in mean and dingy intersections. At the back of the crossing, Grafton Street continues again for a little distance down to Trinity College, at the gates whereof intelligent young men flaunt very tattered gowns and smoke massive pipes with great skill for their years. Skirting the Bank of Ireland and on to the River Liffey and the street which local patriotism defiantly speaks of as O'Connell Street and alien patriotism with equal defiance and pertinacity knows as Sackville Street. 
to the point where these places meet and where the policeman stands, all the traffic of Dublin converges in a constant stream. The trams hurrying to Terenure or Donnybrook or Dawkey flash around this corner. The doctors who, in these degenerate days, concentrate in Merrion Square, fly up here in carriages and motor cars. The vans of the great firms in Grafton and O'Connell Streets, or those outlying, never cease their exuberant progress. The ladies and gentlemen of leisure stroll here daily at four o'clock, and from all sides the vehicles and pedestrians, the bicycles and motor bicycles, the trams and the outside cars rush to the solitary policeman who directs them all with his severe but tolerant eye. He knows all the tram drivers who go by, and his nicely graduated wink rewards the glances of the rubicund jolly drivers of the Hackneys and the decayed Jehus. Nor are the ladies and gentlemen who saunter past far into his encyclopedic eye. Constantly his great head swings a slow recognition. Constantly his serene finger motions onwards a well-known undesirable. The reference to the Fusilier's Arch and its alternative moniker Traitor's Gate, just like the reference to O'Connell, Sackville Street, points to the text recognition that Dublin is a deeply contested space. But the policeman's eye, described as both encyclopedic and severe but tolerant, bespeaks a sense of overarching official control over these competing forces. Just as notable as the proliferation of images of intense bustle and commerce, which remain similarly subject to the control of the policeman's gaze and his complacent ordering of the city's activities with little more than a wag of his serene finger. The passage exaggerates the extent of the policeman's view, so that what he can see in a literal sense is only vaguely distinguished from the much broader panorama of the city as a whole. The only limitation on his figuratively all-consuming sight is when the view is lost in mean and dingy intersections, a reference that carefully contrasts the nameable, civilised main streets from the anonymous maze of slum lanes, while remaining conscious also of an ongoing anxiety about the proximity of extreme poverty. The passage, in other words, evokes a sense of the city's complexity and multiplicity, as well as the overbearing surveillance to which it was subject as an untrustworthy, seditious place. Importantly, however, such images of the modern city are counterbalanced by other, more positive impressions of city life. Mary, for example, often walks along the quays and out to the Phoenix Park, and the narrative recounts her changing sensory impressions, first of the city's commerce, watching the swift boats of Guinness puffing down the river and then of the park itself. There she can stop and watch the bustle of people playing various sports or walk down quiet alleys sheltered by trees and groves of hawthorn, where one can walk for a long time without meeting a person. There is a deep silence to be found there, very strange and beautiful to one fresh from the city, and it is strange also to look about in the broad sunshine and see no person near at all. By contrast, her mother would pine for the dances of the little children, the gallant hurrying of the motor cars and the movement to and fro of the people with gay dresses and coloured parasols and all the circumstance of holiday. The city, crowded and active, can be a joyous place as well, and Mary's enjoyment of the trams, jarvies and outside cars that whiz by and the young men and women darting forth from their offices for lunch provides a vision of the city in which its attraction lies precisely in its speed, its crowds and its combination of functionalism and apparent chaos. Indeed, the crowds are, for Mary, a defining feature of her identification with the city. On her way to work for the first time, encountering the streets at an unfamiliar hour during which they are empty, she seemed almost in a strange country. The novel, indeed, is on occasion capable of flights of lyricism about the city. On a dry, grey day in Dublin, Stevens writes, 
A street is no longer a conjurie of houses huddling shamefully together and terrified lest anyone should look at them and laugh. Each house then recaptures its individuality. The very roadways are aware of themselves and bear their horses and cars and trams in a competent spirit, adorned with modesty as with a garland. The impress of a thousand memories, the historic visage, becomes apparent. The quiet face which experience has ripened into knowledge and mellowed into the wisdom of charity is seen then. The great social beauty shines from the streets under this sky that broods like a thoughtful forehead. This passage projects an urban topography and community that is cohesive and beautiful. Its invocation of the value of history and collective memory is consistent with revivalist social and aesthetic values, while remaining dependent for its force on the urbanity of the scene. It is, perhaps, this vision of the city of which Mary's new suitor is so protective when he bemoans the sight of a British soldier walking the streets. For he saw a conqueror trampling vaingloriously through the capital of his country and the inability of his land to eject the braggart astonished and mortified him. Just as nothing really fundamentally undermines the policeman's power in the novel, notwithstanding his sense of impotence when Mary loses interest in his attentions, which is marked by a sudden but temporary lapse in his surveillance and control of Mary's whereabouts in the city, neither does their escape from poverty signify or emerge out of any broader impetus towards fundamental social change. More striking still, however, is the sudden turn towards vagueness and topographical incoherence that the narrative takes at this point. Discussing what to do with the money, and in particular where they are to move, we are told, hats were mentioned, and dresses, and the new house somewhere, a space embracing somewhere, beyond surmise, beyond geography. The novel's vision for the future breaks down into insubstantiality, its spatial definition melting into ethereal indeterminacy. The novel falters at the moment of imaginative necessity and cannot envision any real life beyond the confines of the social world it has thus far depicted, even if the story's trajectory has always been towards a different horizon. Stephen's ability to imagine the erasure of Dublin more easily than its subsequent fate is illustrated in his contemporaneous journal account of the 1916 Rising, the insurrection in Dublin. The journal recalls a sense of anticipation before the Rising and also the overwhelming uncertainty of life in the city during it. On the first day of the Rising, going by Stephen's Green where crowds of onlookers have gathered, he received an impression of silence and expectation and excitement. The Rising, he said, had been promised for so long and had been threatened for so long. Now it was here. Stephen's account of the early onset of fighting emphasises the difficulty of understanding the city as a war zone in which the mechanised weaponry and mass slaughter of the Great War seems to be impinging on the quotidian and the everyday. That quotidian life, he expects, will eventually reassert itself. Once the volunteers run out of ammunition, he avers, life here will recommence exactly where it left off and except for some newly filled graves, all will be as it had been until they become a tradition and enter the imagination of their race. The statement is a prescient one in its long-term prognosis of the rising's significance, but in the short term, Stephen's fatalistic assessment of the strategic and political value of the rising is that such destructive convulsions are incidental to the operation of quotidian urban experience. However, even at this point, the extent of the destruction in the city centre has made this interpretation more tenuous. Stevens describes a shop on the corner of Sackville Street and the Keys that has undergone heavy shelling. One's heart melted at the idea that human beings were crouching inside that volcano of death, and I said to myself, not even a fly can be alive in that house. It was then, and quite suddenly, that the possibilities of street fighting flashed on me, 
and I knew at this moment that Sackville Street was doomed. I continued to watch the bombardment, but no longer with the anguish which had before torn me. Aside from a sense of resignation in the face of catastrophic destruction, Stephen's journal also registers a burgeoning sense of the imprint that the rising will make on the cityscape as a site of meaning. Describing a Georgian building that has been at the centre of heavy fighting, he writes, To inexperienced eyes, they did not seem to have done very much damage. But afterwards, one found that although the walls were standing and apparently solid, there was no inside to the house. From roof to basement, the building was bare as a dog kennel. There were no floors inside. There was nothing there but blank space. The apparently solid facade of the Georgian house gives way under the carnage of urban warfare to a blank space. The symbolic significance of the house, as a minor relic of Dublin's golden age in the 18th century, has been left bereft of substance. The edifice stands as a symbol of the hollowing out of the city's meaning that the Rising affected. Months before the Rising, Porrick Pierce had declared, Rather than go on living as we are, I would prefer to see Dublin in ruins. His declaration reflects the growing sense of alienation from the cityscape experienced by the Catholic middle class during the previous century. In a city like Dublin, whose monuments and great buildings told a story that occluded the history and identity of those who inhabited and increasingly controlled it, the city in ruins was also a city freed from the constraints imposed by its existing topography. But just like Mary Makebelieve, for the inhabitants of Stephen's Dublin, that moment represents a precipice beyond which a different Dublin can be neither imagined nor articulated. No person in Dublin is excited, but there exists a state of tension and expectancy which is mentally more exasperating than any excitement could be. We do not know what has happened, what is happening, or what is going to happen, and the reversion to barbarism, for barbarism is largely a lack of news, disturbs us. The narrative's emphasis remains on the extent and the thoroughness of the destruction. The finest part of our city has been blown to smithereens and burned into ashes. Soldiers amongst us who have served abroad say that the ruin of this quarter is more complete than anything they have seen at Ypres, than anything they have seen anywhere in France or Flanders. The rising, he argues, must have been only the primary plan, and unless they were entirely mad, there must have been a sequel to it which did not materialise. For Stevens, the rising serves to render Dublin as an imaginatively blank space, divested of the sedimented meanings imparted by history, without providing some framework through which it might be reconstituted or rendered amenable to a new narrative. But this imaginative lapse is all the more surprising in the context of broader cultural reactions to the rising. In its immediate aftermath, many people from diverse political backgrounds saw the destruction as an opportunity just as surely as it represented a tragedy. R.M. Butler, writing in the moderate Catholic journal Studies, stated that the 1916 Rising presented an opportunity to reconstruct the city so that Ireland might well be proud. Elsewhere, the same publication commented that Dublin has need for many public buildings, an art gallery, a school for progressive Irish art, a national theatre, new offices for the Bank of Ireland, a new Parliament House. In The Irish Builder, one writer commented that our city now offers a wide field, a mine of wealth to the architect and engineer and the contractor. In no field was this sense of opportunity more clearly revealed than in urban planning. So, for example, Raymond Unwin, a leading British planner and the man responsible for the parliamentary bill for reconstructing Sackville Street, gained the support of unionists by advocating classical architecture and a houseman-esque commitment to wide and straight streets. Less popular was Edwin Bradbury of the Architectural Association of Ireland, 
who advocated an avowedly modernist architecture that would overcome social division by creating a free space from the heavy weight of history. While the general embrace of urban planning in Ireland was, to some degree, predicated on the belief that it could serve to erase particular historical narratives from urban space, it is a peculiarity of the Irish adaptation of planning ideas that those narratives were not replaced with a call for a historical functionalist space, but rather that each vested interest saw planning as a means of implementing their own vision of Irish history and identity. This is best exemplified in Patrick Abercrombie's new city plan for Dublin, Dublin of the Future, published in 1922. Although Abercrombie's foreword implies that rational planning will provide an antidote to the chaos of rebellion and war, it also says that the destruction wrought by the 1916 Rising naturally gives opportunities which in the ordinary sense could not have been even considered. For example, he provides a map of O'Connell Street and the surrounding neighbourhood in which his new plan is superimposed across the areas worst affected by the fighting. In the caption, Abercrombie notes, The destruction of St. Thomas Church and the frontage in O'Connell Street will allow Gloucester Street to be carried through. Thus, like Houseman and Le Corbusier, Abercrombie requires the partial destruction of the existing city as a prerequisite for the new one. The foreword recommends that public buildings, for example municipal offices, might now be found a more convenient position on one of the demolished sites. Demolition, therefore, renders these sites as blank canvases on which the future can be imposed without regard for the history those spaces might once have reflected, or for the social, cultural and economic forces which hastened their destruction and which did not necessarily reflect the interests of the state whose ideological tendencies the plan attempts to accommodate. What differentiates Abercrombie's work from that of a writer like Stevens is the ability to crystallise a vision for the city's future after it has been rendered imaginatively blank. Stevens notes towards the end of Insurrection that as the chances of success for the rising begin to diminish, the volunteers appear to have mapped out the roofs with all the thoroughness that had hitherto been expended on the roads, and upon these roofs they are so mobile and crafty and so much at home that the work of the soldiers will be exceedingly difficult as well as dangerous. These actions, emerging in moments of contingency and desperation, serve to challenge official architectonic control of the cityscape, altering fundamentally the relationship between the city and its inhabitants in ways that lie deliberately outside the purview of the state apparatus. Though not, in its conception, a revivalist text, Stevens here explores how Dublin might be appropriated in ways consonant with the demands of an Irish identity politics traditionally hostile to the very notion of city space. For the literary revival, however, the form that such an imaginative appropriation might take remains under-articulated and indeterminate. You have been listening to Dr. Liam Lanigan in this UCD ScholarCast as part of the series Modalities of Revival. A transcript of this lecture is available to download at ucd.ie forward slash ScholarCast.